Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Dave Ansell. Hello in Cambridge. Hi there. And we have Chris Smith, who's out in Los Angeles. Hello. Lucky bugger. In this week's show, we'll be hearing how scientists have developed a new way to look inside the body, but without resorting to harmful x-rays. Instead, they're using lasers. We'll find out how genetic researchers have made a giant leap, or should that be a rather slow lumber forward in genetic sequencing, by sequencing the woolly mammoth genome. And we'll be getting to grips with an ultra-slippery material that could save millions of pounds every year. That's all on the way. Chris. Thank you very much, Kat. And yes, it's very nice and warm here in L.A. Uh, This week is, of course, our science Q&A extravaganza, when we'll be answering your science questions for you, including finding out if mosquitoes can transmit malaria, then can they also transmit HIV? We'll also be finding out how space probes use planets to give them a slingshot and speed them up on their way across the solar system, and also why trees lose their leaves in winter some of the time. Dave. Thanks, Chris. And this week, I've got a ghostly kitchen science for you. So if you want to join in with the experiment, you'll need to get a friend, a couple of torches and a window. It's all right, you can leave it attached to the house. And I'll be telling you what to do shortly. We'll also be catching up with our technology expert, Chris Valance, who's got good news for anyone caught short looking for a loo. Basically what they did was invited the public to come up with new information services, new ways of displaying government data and got the public to vote on the suggestions they liked best. And the shortlist contained some pretty interesting uh, suggestions. First of all, there was the Loo Finder, which was a service which would enable you to find a, a public toilet near you. And so my days of sneaking into pubs and restaurants to use the Loo could soon be over. Thank you, Kat. That's all coming up. And if you'd like to drop us a line, of course, to The Naked Scientist, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This week, scientists have found a way to look inside the body, but not using X-rays, using lasers. Now, this is a big breakthrough for Mark Nidre and his colleagues there at Northeastern University in Boston, US. They've got a paper explaining how they've done this in the PNAS journal this week. And what they've done is to make use of the fact that light can transmit through tissue. In fact, if you take a torch or a laser pointer or something and put it over the end of your finger, turn it on, you see your whole finger glowing red. But this also highlights the problem, which is that when light goes through tissue, it gets bounced about like a bullet going round a room in a ricochet. 
And as a result, it's very difficult to see the structure of tissues at very fine scales. So how have they got around the problem? Well, what they've done is to use what's called near-infrared laser. This is a form of laser light which is near the infrared, so nearly heat but not quite. And they've delivered very intense but very, very short pulses, less than one million, million, millionths of a second long, to fire those pulses through the tissue and they've recorded from the other side of the tissue the first photons, the first light particles that come through. Their reasoning being that the light that goes through first must have taken the most direct course through the tissue and not been bounced about all over the place, and as a result it's probably got the most accurate information about the tissue. And by doing this they can measure sub millimetre resolution so they can see things down at very very tiny scales superior in some ways to a CT a computer tomography scan that uses x-rays but because this isn't x-rays it's just normal visible light it's not harmful to the person and at the same time they've managed to go one step further and get information about the biochemistry of the tissue that they've been studying how have they done that? Well, they've added some antibodies to mice that had lung tumours, and these antibodies were programmed to glow, and the antibodies were also programmed to lock on just to the cancer. So when the laser light goes through, they can see where these antibodies are, but at the same time, they can pick up interesting information about the tissue around the lung tumour. Because when they did CT scans on these mice, you could see the tumour and you could see what looked like healthy tissue around the tumour. But with the laser technique, you see that there are reactive biochemical changes going on in the tissue around the tumour too. And so this adds a whole new dimension to how we can image tissues. So it's a very exciting breakthrough. And although they've only done this on mice so far, there's no reason why this couldn't work on humans. So I guess it's a question of watch this space. Oh, fantastic. Here's a, a totally unrelated story, nothing to do with lasers or humans. It's to do with ponds. And a national survey from the countryside has shown that good quality ponds are vanishing from many parts of the UK, although there's actually technically more ponds in numerical terms. And, of course, this could spell disaster for wildlife. And the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, they carry out this countryside-wide survey in the UK every 10 years. It's commissioned by DEFRA and the Natural Environment Research Council. And this is one of, in fact, the world's first national surveys of the condition of ponds and the results showed that although the number of ponds in Britain has gone up by 11% since 1998 only 8 of them, 8% of them are currently in a good condition and the, the quality of ponds has gone down over the past 10 years and this is really quite significant because uh, according to Dr Jeremy Biggs and he's in charge of this charity Pond Conservation ponds may seem pretty insignificant you know maybe you just use them for a bit of pond dipping uh, or that you fall in them by accident but in fact they have at least as much variety of wildlife as rivers and lakes and they provide a very important refuge for many endangered plants and animals and many very rare and delicate freshwater plants and animals do depend on ponds so this falling quality could actually be really serious and of course ponds are also a very important carbon sink as well for taking carbon dioxide out of the air. And although it's positive that the number of ponds in the UK has increased, we really need to improve the quality. And in fact, pond conservation is starting a million pond project. So they're trying; at, they're starting on with 5,000 new ponds, so they're not going for the million straight away. But um, ponds are actually much more significant than you might have thought for, for but, wildlife and for carbon. But Kat, if, if the problem is the, is the quality, not quantity, just having more ponds is not going to change that, is it? It is. So they're, they're planning on trying to get people to, to make new ponds and, and keep them nice and trying to think about the areas where people put them, trying to keep them away from agricultural runoff. So really thinking about not just making more ponds for the sake of it, but trying to build good quality ponds. It's going to be very important. Cool. Thanks, Kat. 
Now, on another completely different subject, if you're making a machine with moving parts, you often want to make these moving parts slide past each other, even if you've got two gear wheels, when, as the teeth mesh and unmesh, they're actually sliding past each other. And a big loss of energy in most machines is the friction that it takes to do that, so it's just energy which is wasted. Now, the most the traditional thing to do to reduce this is to add some lubricant, chuck some oil in there. Slot the oil on, Dave. Yeah, that's it. The problem is oil is kind of, it kind of runs out the bottom, so you've got to very carefully seal everything. It gets dirty, it's kind of messy. Um, so there are other low-friction coatings like Teflon, which you can find on non-stick frying pans, and actually has been used to slide whole motorway slip roads around. However, these tend to be very soft and wouldn't last five minutes on a powerful gear wheel. Now, scientists in the Amy's laboratory in the US have, may have accidentally discovered a material which could solve this problem. They were actually searching for material to generate power when you heat one side of it and cool the other. And one of the materials they tried was aluminium magnesium boride. Now, this didn't work at all, for, at all well for what they were testing it for. <laughs> but that when they were doing it, they discovered it was exceedingly hard to cut up. It was very hard and difficult to work. And so they did some tests on it, and they discovered it wasn't quite as hard as diamond, but third after carbon boron nitride and, and um, diamond. They also found it was incredibly slippery. It had a coefficient of friction of 0.02. That means if you push down with 100 newtons, you only have to push sideways with 2 newtons to make the block move. Um, which is actually more than twice as good as Teflon and more than eight times as good as steel, which has been lubricated. Dave, why is it so slippery? Um, They don't really know. There are some theories that possibly you get water molecules from the air stuck on the surface, which acts as a sort of self-lubricated with a little tiny bit of water on the surface. But they're looking into it. It's got a very, very strange structure. Most hard materials are very regular, like diamond. But this one seems to have all sorts of cracks in it, holes in the structure, and it's just very strange. So they're still definitely looking into it. It's still very expensive at the moment, but they reckon that if they manage to mass produce it and coated just all the pump blades on pumps in the United States, the reduction in friction could save over £100 million a year just in saved energy. So how would you actually use it? Because if it's so hard, how would you coat it onto materials Um, like gear wheels in order to exploit it? The way they're doing it at the moment is they basically get a little target um, of the the precursor to it. Um, They put the gear wheel opposite it and they fire a big laser at this target. It evaporates and then condenses onto the gear wheel. And producing, they only, you only need about a sort of two micrometer thick, two millionths of a meter thick um, coating on the outside of the gear wheel to get this slippery and very hard coating. And it has the other advantage that it should reduce wear, and so things should last longer. Well, my car's still going okay. Got 130,000 on the clock, and it's on its first clutch, so it's obviously doing something right. Well, I've just had to buy a new one, so I think I could do with a, uh, a hydrogen carbon boron plated car, Chris. Well, <laughs> we're talking about lasers. Uh, I talked about lasers in terms of how they could see through tissue, but what about using them to actually help you hear better? Australia is the country where the cochlear implant was first invented. Cochlear implants are electrical devices which directly stimulate electrically the nerve cells in the inner ear, which is the part of the ear that turns sound waves into nerve signals that the brain can understand. And this has been used to revolutionise hearing aid design because in some people where there's damage to the cochlea, it's very, very difficult in order for people to to pick up sound waves. What What the cochlear implant does is to pick up those sound waves, turn them into electrical signals, and then with an array of electrodes, stimulate the right bits of the cochlea that are sensitive to certain sound waves so that the person gets some degree of hearing back. The problem is that there's a finite limit on the number of the electrodes that you can actually put into these cochlear implants because if you put them too close together, then when you stimulate one electrode, 
and that makes the person hear frequencies of one type, then the electrical signal sort of spreads along the cochlea and stimulates some of the other electrodes too. And so there's a limit to how many of them you can put in before the person starts to hear just interference rather than useful noises. But cochlear implants aren't perfect, of course, and people who have them still find it very difficult to appreciate music, for example, and certain types of language, like Mandarin Chinese, which are very tonal. Now researchers have come up with a way of stimulating the inner ear using light. This is Klaus Peter Richter, and he's a researcher at Northwestern University in Chicago. And there was a medical bionics conference which took place in Victoria, uh, in, in Australia, in the last week. And what this group announced at that conference is that they've shown in guinea pigs that you can stimulate the nerve cells in the cochlea using infrared laser light. So what they're able to do is to put sound waves into a laser. The laser then stimulates the right bit of the cochlea and then they recorded the signals being relayed to the brain from a structure called the inferior colliculus, which is the part of the brain that relays sound onto consciousness. And what they found is that the signals that were being picked up in these experimental guinea pigs were almost identical to guinea pigs that were uh, of normal hearing. So this shows that it might be possible in future to produce very accurate stimulation of the cochlea to overcome deafness just using laser light, although at the moment they don't know why the lasers directly stimulate the nerve cells, but it could be something to do with a, a heat-sensitive effect or some other kind of changing of the membrane, the surface layer of the cell, which makes it more excitable, and that's what recruits it. That's fascinating and, and good hope, because I know that cochlear implants aren't aren't really great, but they seem to be the best thing that, that people have at the moment. Um, and now again, complete change of subject, and now we're talking about a giant leap or maybe quite a slow lumber forward for genetic research because scientists at Penn State University have sequenced the genome, more or less, of a woolly mammoth. I love this story. I love all mammoth stories. Um, and the team have sequenced 4 billion bases or letters of DNA using the latest technology and also new approach to, to reading very, very old DNA. And it's also quite cheap as well. And they have about 100 times more data for the mammoths now than they do have for any other extinct species. Um, although actually probably around only 3.5 billion of these letters are actually mammoth and the rest are probably contaminating bacteria. Now the researchers think that overall mammoth genome is probably about the size of that of the modern day African elephant. And in fact they used the elephant genome that they're also working on to try and work out which bits of their DNA they had were mammoth and which were contamination. And the key to this was doing the DNA sequencing from mammoth hair, so the fur of the mammoth. And this is an interesting thing because the mammoths have basically been frozen in Siberian permafrost for sort of 20,000 years. And they also used another mummy that had been frozen for about 60,000 years. And the hair actually preserves the structure of ancient DNA better than bones because the hair proteins almost act like, you know, plastic wrap or cling film encasing the DNA and helping to keep it free of contamination. It's also relatively easy to get contaminated contaminating bacteria and things like that off the hair. And so by comparing the mammoth sequence to that of modern-day elephants, the researchers now think that mammoths and their modern cousins separated about six million years ago, around the time that we evolved from chimps. But unlike humans and chimps, which have re we've relatively quickly evolved and separated into two very distinct species, it's likely that mammoths and elephants have evolved at really a much more sedentary and maybe elephantine pace. And this is probably to do with the fact that um, they... Uh, don't move very fast they don't breed very quickly and um you know they they may be more susceptible to things like diseases which could explain why they went extinct so maybe those clues to mammoth extinction might be in their dna as well and also it is another step forward along with um the recent discovery that you could actually 
recreate. You could clone things from frozen cells. Um, it could be maybe another step to bringing back the woolly mammoth, which I think would be so cool. Slightly scary concept, but anyway. Oh, I want to see it. Anyway, now, it's often said that oil and water don't mix, but if you've ever done any washing up, you'll know you can make them mix by adding a detergent. This um, reduces the amount of energy it takes to, to mix the two together, so it stabilises little blob- globules of oil in water, or vice versa. Now, this sort of thing is often done in chemistry, um, quite often to dissolve something like a, um, some nanoparticles in a liquid they wouldn't normally dissolve in. It means these nanoparticles can be used to catalyse a useful experiment. Um, experiment a useful reaction and produce a useful um result at the end the problem is that you've now got all these very expensive nanoparticles suspended evenly throughout a great big volume of solvent and normally the only way you can separate these out is by spinning them using the sort of artific- centrifugal force to separate the heavier nanoparticles down like to a one salad end. spinner kind of like thing. a salad that spinner idea, yeah. yeah throw all the heavy particles out to the edge and get rid of all the solvent the problem is centrifuges are big expensive dangerous things and it's never going to be a solution to mass production now chemists from the university of bristol have developed a chemical which could solve these problems Normally it works like a normal detergent, allowing droplets of water to dissolve in oil. But if you shine ultraviolet light on it, it suddenly ceases to be a detergent um, and will dissolve in the water again. The water droplets have got nothing to help them stay separate in the oil. And then they clump together and then it's easy to separate them out. Right. How does this work? How does ultraviolet light make this turn from a detergent to a, not a detergent? Well, what they've done is they've taken a normal detergent molecule and added into it something called azobenzene. Now this has got a little uh, j- junction in it. And when you shine ultraviolet light on it, it kind of gets a kink in it. And this so this is to do with that, like, all these molecules are very long and complex. So they've got sort of very long bendy bits in yeah. them, haven't they? Yeah, and if you put a big kink in it, it changes all the properties of the material and suddenly makes it soluble in water, and it will dissolve in water. But the really, really elegant feature is then if you shine visible light on it, it unkinks it, and, it, and it, you can then put your nanoparticles back in the next batch and use it again and again, and it's beautiful recycling. Absolutely brilliant. Isn't science wonderful? Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, with Dave Ansell here in Cambridge. And we have Chris Smith, who's over in LA, the lucky bugger. We're also beaming the programme into Second Life, as we do every Sunday at 6 o'clock GMT, which is 10am Second Life time. If you'd like to join us, go to the Scilands in Second Life and drop by the Naked Scientist mansion and pull up a pew. So we're going to answer all your science questions, uh, hopefully try and answer them for you today. Our first question here comes from Ed Hurtle in the USA, and here's a question for Chris. So uh, if you're there, Chris, why can't mosquitoes transmit diseases like dirty needles can? Yes, well, of course, the, the thing we know that mosquitoes are very good at transmitting is malaria. And the way in which they transmit malaria is that people who have malaria are made more susceptible and they're more attractive to mosquitoes in the first place. So the mosquito flies in, bites the person who is infectious for malaria. The malaria parasite, plasmodium, then gets inside the body of the mosquito where it infects the gut cells of the mosquito and grows or replicates in there. This means that from a very small initial infecting dose, you have a very big dose then living inside the mosquito. The mosquito then goes and feeds on a second human who isn't infected with malaria, and in the course of feeding, the mosquito injects some of its saliva into the person, which acts as an anticoagulant and also as an immune suppressant so that the person's immune system doesn't attack the mosquito while it's feeding. And in the course of injecting that saliva, it now injects some of those malarial parasites which are inside it, now at very high levels, into the person, and that's how the person catches malaria. But what about things things like... like 
Sorry, yeah, what about things like viruses and HIV? Because I know but this with is HIV, a worry. The problem with HIV is that it, it's, not, it's not actually that infectious, but when it comes to a mosquito, the problem for HIV is that it can't actually infect the mosquito. So a person who has HIV doesn't actually have very much virus going around in the bloodstream until either the latter stages of the disease, when they've got AIDS, or right at the very first part of the disease. So the amount of virus taken into the mosquito is very low. But then when the virus um, gets into the mosquito, it gets broken down or destroyed by the mosquito's digestive juices. It's not adapted to infecting or persisting inside the mosquito. So when that mosquito then goes and bites another person, the amount of virus that's in there is vanishingly small, if not zero, and therefore the amount that gets put back into the next person who gets bitten is absolutely tiny, and as a result, the person doesn't get infected. And that's very useful and very fortunate because, of course, with 30 million people on Earth, or more than 30 million people on Earth at the moment infected with HIV, if it could spread that way, it would be a major problem because malaria infects about three to 500 million people every year and kills about three to 5 million of them. Crikey, well, let's hope it, it doesn't figure out how to do it. Anyway, it is time to get experimental now. And Dave, what have you got for us in our kitchen science this week? Well, this week's kitchen science is incredibly simple. All you need okay. is a window. A window? Have we got a window? Um, I, have a, I don't actually have a window, it's a bit awkward, but I do have a useful piece of glass. Is that like part of your coffee table? Um, it was originally a set of bathroom scales, which got <laughs> adjusted for another purpose since I had the glass left over, so this works as a good window. Okay, so we have a piece of glass. So if you imagine this was a real window. Okay, so yeah, should I hold it? We're standing we each side of the window, so you need to get you to stand on one side of the window and get your friend to stand on the other side of the window. Okay, you don't have to be friends with them. Or, or just another person. Another person. <laughs> Any <acquaintance>. old person. <laughs> okay, you each need to have a torch. Okay. Okay, so you um, have a nice oh, large a torch. torch. Okay. okay, and then what I want you to do is first turn off all the lights on both sides. We'll, we'll do this in the second half. Later, okay. Um, turn off all the lights both inside the room and outside, if possible. And then first turn on your torch and see what you can see and what your friend can see. And then get them turn off your torch, get them to turn on their torch and see what they can see and you can see. And then turn on both torches and see what you can see. Okay, so... We're here, we're in the dark. I would turn on my torch. Facing at your face. Facing at my face yeah. and see what I can see. Then you would turn on your torch. I would turn mine off. You turn yours on. Yeah, and see what we can see. See what we see. can see. So it's got to be pointing at my face, yes, lighting up my always face. Always shine your torches at your own face. Okay, and then we both do them together. Yeah, that's right. Right, so at home you need a mirror, a friend or acquaintance. Uh, not a mirror, a glass. It looks a bit mirrory. I can see my window. dirt in it. You need a window. Two torches and someone that you know who will be willing to do this. And we'll be trying it later if we can work out where the light switches are in the studio. Anyway, now we've got a few more questions. And, uh, and Chris, I think you might be able to answer this one because we've had a, a call in from Jean in Cambridge who says, how do water tablets reduce blood pressure? And I'm assuming these are simply tablets that make you wee more, which presumably would reduce your blood pressure. What do you think? Yes, and the, the simplest way to think about this is that when you take a diuretic... In other words, something that makes your body lose water, that's what water tablets are, then you're reducing the volume of water in the body and therefore you're reducing the volume of water inside your blood vessels. And blood vessels are a fixed size and the more water that you put inside them, otherwise known as blood, then the more stretched they are and therefore the higher the pressure because liquids are incompressible. So if you lose water from the body, then this means that there's less fluid in the vessels and as a result the pressure is a bit lower. That's probably an oversimplification 
medication and there's probably more to it than that. We know that some of these blood pressure tablets have other effects which affect metabolism and they also affect the amount of sodium in the body quite, and that's, that's principally how they work. But put simply, it's because you're reducing the volume of liquid inside a sealed container and if you take some liquid out, then the amount of stretch, the pressure in the blood vessels must go down. Excellent. OK, and here's a nice question for you, Kat. Now, from a scientific or health perspective, are the differences between red wine and red grape juice besides the presence of the alcohol? This is a great one because everyone wants to know, you know, can I drink red wine and will it prevent cancer or that kind of stuff? Um, and the answer is that, yes, there are obviously chemical differences between grape juice and wine, and the main one being the presence of alcohol. And there are a kind of physiological benef- uh, differences between drinking them. The main thing is that alcohol is a very effective solvent and a lot of the sort of biological chemicals that, that may be found in wine are kind of can be dissolved into fat using alcohol. That's why alcohol's a great solvent. So you'd probably be able to get more chemicals into your body by drinking wine. And this is also actually why if you smoke and drink at the same time, you'll actually do yourself a lot more harm than if you just smoked or just drank alcohol. Because um, alcohol does help to all these nasty, nasty chemicals that are in tobacco smoke to pass into your, your body much more easily. But in terms of the absolute health benefits of what's in red wine, the main culprit is uh, a chemical called resveratrol. And, you know, tabloids get very excited about this and say, ah, oh, red wine, we should all drink loads. Resveratrol is a really interesting molecule and organisations like Cancer Research UK, I know, are investigating it to see if it can prevent cancer. But the amount that you get in the average uh, bottle of, of red wine is actually relatively small. And um, a scientist told me before that you would have to drink hundreds of bottles of red wine a day to actually get enough resveratrol to have an effect. So, um, you know, I think the actual differences are, are quite minimal between um, grape juice and wine in terms of the health benefits. And uh, we're actually investigating resveratrol as a more uh, you purify the chemical and, and give it to people in that way in terms of actual alcohol health benefits there are the research has shown that there's benefits for certainly for heart type things for cardiovascular disease in a very small group of people and this is basically i think men over the age of 50 and women over the menopause who drink one unit of alcohol per day and that's a very small amount um but then generally alcohol does actually cause things like cancer and does cause things like heart disease and stroke if you drink um, in in reasonably large amounts. So probably if you really want health benefits, you best stick into the grape juice. There's one other chemical in in red wine which we should mention probably at this point, and that's procyanidin. Um, Roger Corder is a researcher at the London Hospital Medical College and St Bartholomew's Medical College in London, and he actually found out how this works. You can find lots of procyanidin in Tanac grapes, which are from southwest France, and also some of the grapes that grow at very high altitude. And the reason you find that is because it's an antioxidant molecule and it helps to protect the grapes from ultraviolet. But when you put it into your body, what Roger Corder found is that it helps to relax blood vessels. So, in fact, this is present at sufficiently high quantities in red wine that you would have at therapeutic levels, i.e. a glass with dinner, and it will cause a reduction in things like blood pressure and therefore reduce heart disease and stroke risk. So if you go and buy red wine, look for Tanak grapes because they're the good ones. Now, this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Kat Arney, and we're answering your science questions for you. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, do email us. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Dave, got a very quick question for you. This is from Kenneth Ellison, and he says, how do space vehicles pick up speed by using other planets' gravity to slingshot them on their way? Yeah, this is a really neat um, trick which NASA and other space agencies use called the gravitational slingshot. 
Now, the, the way it works is that because the planets are orbiting, they're moving, they're not stationary. So if you imagine going, if you imagine firing yourself, if you're a space um, probe, going outwards away from towards a planet, and if you come just, if you imagine going just behind the planet, now the planet's gravity is going to pull you towards it. And because the planet is moving... Um, away from you all the time it's going to pull you towards it more than it would do if it than if it was stationary because you've got to catch up with it before uh, <laughs> because it keeps moving away from you so you don't move towards it as quickly as you would have done so you actually gain energy so when you leave it you actually um, gain a load of energy from this planet and you slow the planet down a bit um, so do you have to get the angle of attack or approach to the planet just right so that as the planet moves away from you it doesn't pull you off course again well i mean the whole point is that you're um you're, it's, it's using the planet to pull you off course in a way which helps you so yeah you've got to be have a very careful approach if you want to speed up you go behind the planet if you want to slow down you go in front of it and then overall this will give you more energy or less energy and get you to where you want to be intriguing thanks dave stripping down science <laughs> the naked scientists you are listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat and, and Dave here in the studio and with Chris in L.A. Not that we're jealous because it's freezing cold here. Anyway, still to come, Diana O'Carroll, the glamorous ever Diana O'Carroll, is going to find out if helium balloons can float on the moon. And in Kitchen Science, Dave will reveal what happens when you shine a torch on either side of a window. But first, it's time to find out what's been happening in the world of technology with Mira Senthilingham. Yes, it's time for our tech update. And this month, it's all about the power of the web. I'm in London with our resident tech expert, Chris Valance. Now, Chris, we haven't heard from you in a while. How have you been? I've been fine. I've been uh, checking out a few government competitions. Government competitions that could help us find a loo when out on the town, is that right? Yes, there's that age-old problem, isn't it? You know, you're r- running around town and you just can't find a public loo. Believe it or not, that kind of information, it's public data. It's public information. And often public information can either be quite dull... You know, you have to look through tables and tables and tables of stuff, or it can be really, really hard to find. So a, a group called the Power of Information Task Force, which is a government set-up group, ran a competition. If you like, it's an X factor for government information. Basically what they did was they invited the public to come up with new information services, new ways of displaying government data, and got the public to vote on the suggestions they liked best, so as to see which should make it into the shortlist. And the shortlist contained some pretty interesting uh, suggestions. First of all, there was the Loo Finder, which was a service which would enable you to find a, a public toilet near you. There was the location of post boxes, another thing that would show you the location of cycle paths, and something else which would show you school catchment areas. And I think that's quite an interesting thing, because that sort of shows that you'd think it'd be easy to find out where your school catchment area is. In fact, it's surprisingly hard. There were a few suggestions that didn't make the cut into the final as well. A particular um, favourite of mine was one called Baby Blob, which would show you the average weight of babies born in a particular part of the country. I don't know why, but (laughs) it looked like a really fun idea. So a lot of interesting ideas, but it's those five that are going to get some development funding, so you're likely to see those actually becoming reality in, in a while. Well, with some of those, I mean, like you say, the catchment areas and also the one that shows you cycle paths, you would think that they would already be available. Well, I think that's one of the issues coming out of this, is it does show how much public information of a quite basic sort can be quite hard to find. That's the question I put to the Cabinet Office Minister responsible for the competition, Tom Watson. I asked him if basically wasn't this an admission that public information hadn't been easy to get hold of. 
I think it's an admission that in the modern age there's been a huge uh, increase in the capacity to process data, even in uh, the last few years. But if you look when the government were elected in 1997... 10% of people had heard of had used a thing called the internet and now two-thirds of us have got broadband connections. We're much more used to crunching up data, doing clever things with information. The mashup community out there are leading the way on this and I think it's entirely appropriate that the government talk to them, learn from their skills, their cutting-edge design ideas and turn it into good public services that people want. And that was Cabinet Office Minister Tom Watson. So who was the winner of this competition? Well, I didn't give it away earlier. Astute listeners may have noticed I only mentioned four of the shortlisted uh, five. That's because the actual winner of that was one of the shortlisted ones. It was called Can I Recycle It? The idea is it will enable you to type in your postcode. If you've got something, you don't know whether you can recycle it and you don't know where you can recycle it. This website will will tell you the answer, hopefully. It's all created by a, a trainee barrister, a chap called Adam Temple, and he told me about why he came up with this idea. When I wanted to throw something away myself and didn't know whether to recycle it or not, my own council's website wouldn't tell me. So I wanted a website that would tell you specifically for any individual piece of rubbish whether you could recycle it or not. And that was Adam Temple, whose idea, Can I Recycle It?, was the overall winner of the government's Show Us a Better Way competition. So thanks to things like this competition then, is this an area that the government is increasingly becoming interested in then? I think very much so. I mean, we're we're sort of sat here outside a coffee shop in central London. I mean, at the moment I could get my phone out, I could look up the postcode we're in, I could plug that in, I could find out who the local MP is through a a site called They Work For You. I could find out, you know, if there was something wrong with the pavements, I could complain about it to the local council through a site called Fix My Street. These are all sites created by third parties. But government itself is very interested in harnessing some of this technology. There was recently a big conference that brought together people from government departments, brought together media and uh, academics and uh, sort of net visionaries, if you like, working in this space. It was called the E-Democracy Conference. It was chaired by Dan Jelenic, a journalist and uh, writer on government's use of IT. And I spoke to Dan and asked him what government departments were actually doing by way of using this kind of new technology. Um, Well, they are beginning to cotton on. I mean, they've noticed and they've started to hear about sites like Facebook. And initially, um, Whitehall being Whitehall and quite conservative with a a small C, they haven't really felt happy engaging with these places. Um, But they've begun to notice that the numbers of people um, using them are very large. And these are people that they do need to reach. So, for example, if there's an online community with lots of mothers on it, um, there may be 15,000, there may be 20,000 mothers all talking about something the government wants to give advice on. If all those people were in one physical place, all in a football stadium or something for a big event, the government would want to be there. They'd want to have a little stand giving out leaflets. So if they're all on the Internet, the government should go there on the Internet and get involved where, they, where those people actually are. And that was at Dan Jelenic. I think this is going to be a growth area. We're going to see more and more of this kind of interactive tool in the coming years as people really realise how much data is out there. So it won't just be about finding the uh, nearest available public toilet. Well, so as well as finding the loo, we'll be able to speed through London on cycle routes and know where to stop off en route to post that urgent letter. And that was Chris Valance talking to Mira Senthilingham about recent web developments. Now, tonight on The Naked Scientist, we are answering all your science questions. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith in Los Angeles, lucky me, and Dave Ansell and Kat Arney 
in Cambridge. Cat question here from Eduardo Godoy, who says, why do leaves lose their why do trees lose their leaves in temperate climates? Well, the only trees that lose their leaves are deciduous trees, and they're different from coniferous trees. But the reason that they do this mainly is because leaves fulfil an interesting function for trees. Not only do they help them produce energy by photosynthesis, that's where the pigments live that, that help trees to make energy from sunlight, from carbon dioxide and water, but also they act as the tree's disposal system. So throughout the year, the tree will kind of grow, uh, produce energy, uh, sugars and all sorts of things in its leaves, and its waste products get put back into the leaves. And now every autumn, um, basically because trees do need a lot of water, they start to have a less reliable supply necessarily of water, uh, less light as well. So the trees decide, okay, now is the time to get rid of our leaves, and they lose them. And it's basically a way that trees are getting rid of their waste products. And this is also why they're changing in colour as well, because these waste products are different colours to the green chlorophyll pigment that helps them to make energy. And um, basically, deciduous trees will lose their leaves in this way, but coniferous trees, so pine trees, all these things with little needles, they uh, don't they don't produce energy in quite the same way and they also don't need have quite so much a need for water they have this thin very thin leaves that lose less water and they have a very waxy cuticle on them so deciduous trees they're basically throwing out the garbage when they're getting rid of their leaves i did also hear that there's quite a clever trick researchers at colgate university here in the u.s a few years ago discovered that acer trees also use this as the tree equivalent of chemical warfare because they pump into their leaves various toxins which, when the leaves fall to the ground, suppress the growth of plants and other things that would normally grow in the ground. And this means that when their seeds try and germinate, they have much less competition. And the researchers who did this showed that they could kill lettuce plants with the leaf extract from these acer trees. So you could say that when it comes to giving their, their, their offspring a fighting chance, they've got an ace up their leaves. <laughs> Dave, quick question for you. This is from Matista who says, why do objects appear to converge in the distance? So if you look at two railway tracks going away into the distance, they seem to come to a point. And if you see sunlight, these crepuscular rays, God's fingertips coming through the clouds, they also seem to be coming from a focal point just beyond the clouds. So why is that, she says? OK, this is basically all to do with geometry. Um, if you, the, How big something looks on the back of your eye is to do with how big an angle it takes up in front of you. So if two things are a very small angle apart, then they're going to look very close together in the back of your eye and if there's a big angle between them then it's going to use up more of your retina so they'll look bigger um, and now how do you make that angle it's, it's all um, geography um, geometry you may have done at school if you imagine a triangle um, if you got the, with one side which is how far away something is and then the distance and then a right, a right angle is that how far apart the two objects are um, the further away they are the the, the long the further away something is the smaller angle they're going to make um, they're going to look between the two of them so the smaller they're going to appear on the back of your eyes so the reason why railway tracks um, look as if they're getting closer and closer together is because they're a metre close to you and a metre a mile away from you but the angle which a metre makes close to you is much larger than a metre will make a long way away from you so it looks like they're getting closer and closer together so Why do you think the visual system doesn't compensate Dave and, and tell us that things are just the same distance apart even 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 though they might be making a smaller um, impression I mean, on the rest. I think your visual system does to some extent um, compensate because the moon looks different sizes depending on how high it is in the sky if it's right on the horizon where it's near other objects which you know are a long way away you think it's much bigger than if when it's up in the sky when you have when you've no concept how far away it is so you think it's closer so it looks smaller which is why you get this optical illusion that the moon looks huge on the horizon but tiny up in the sky 
presumably it's to stop you thinking, oh my God, like train tracks are enormous and help you keep some sense of perspective. Uh, we've got a question for you, Chris, from uh, Olga in Australia, who says, why does tea taste different when it's cold? Mm, I love cold tea, not. Um, great question, though, and I think there are probably three, possibly four reasons for this. I think the, the principal re- reason is the temperature, because when you take food and drink into your mouth, what we call taste is largely actually down to smell. And you can prove this yourself. If you take something strongly flavoured into your mouth and then hold your nose, you'll notice that it appears to lose most of its taste. And that's because when you put warm things or things that are cold into your mouth, the heat in your mouth volatilizes, in other words, turns into vapour. Some of the volatile chemicals in the food, they then drift up the back of your nose into your nasopharynx, where they dock with chemical receptors in what's called your olfactory epithelium. That's where you smell. And this tells the brain that particular flavours are present. So most of the food we eat, we actually experience the taste as a smell. When you put cold tea into your mouth, the temperature, the reduction in temperature of the tea, means that many of the volatile chemicals that are in the tea don't escape from the tea in the same way or at the same rate that they would do with hot tea because the more energy you give something, the hotter it is, the more of these chemicals will be driven off. This means that as a result, less stimulation goes into the olfactory epithelium so the taste is less strong for some chemicals than others so the tea tastes different. That would be my first point. The second point is that when tea's cold, the viscosity is very different. It's a, it's a thicker fluid than when it's hotter. And this means that the, the stimulation into your mouth and tongue is a bit different as well. So it tastes and feels different in the mouth, which also changes your perception of the flavour of the tea. And then there's another possibility, which is that when tea has stood for a long time and got cold, it has separated out according to density of the different components of the tea. Because when you've got a hot cup of tea, you've got thermal activity in the fluid. So hot things are rising to the top and cold fluid is falling to the bottom. And this keeps the contents mixed. But when you have a tea cup standing there for a long time and the temperature has fallen, then it stops mixing like this and things get separated out. So the fatty, less dense things go to the top and the more dense things go to the bottom. So the mouthful of tea you get isn't a mixture of tea like it would have been before when it was hot. So I think there's a combination of things that conspire together to make your tea much less enjoyable. Grim. We've got a quick question that's come in on the phones from Andrew in Cambridge, and this is probably for Dave, and he says, how does a Yagi aerial work? Now, I've I've never even heard of a Yagi aerial, so tell us what it is and tell us how it works. Okay, a Yagi aerial is the sort of things you see TV aerials, basically, the ones whereby you've got lots of lots of... You've got a long bit heading out, pointing towards the transmitter, and you've got lots of sort of cross bars along it. So your typical, like, what you think of a typical TV aerial, a stick with lots of sticks across it. But Dave, why are they that shape? Okay, what's going on here is that the idea of an um, aerial like this is to try and make the aerial very, very directional so it only pick up signals from the direction of the transmitter and not pick up all the interference coming from all the other directions. And basically, uh, radio waves are a form of electromagnetic waves, which mean that if they hit a piece of metal, they'll make electro- electric current f- flow backwards and forwards along it. Now, each of those little sort of bars on the aerial acts when the radio waves hit it it's electricity sort of sloshes backwards and forwards along it and then that electricity sloshing backwards and forwards starts to transmit itself so it makes its own more radio waves and then so you've got a whole series of these all um, absorbing radio waves and then re-emitting them again and again and again um, and the only direction whereby all of the uh, radio waves have been re-emitted by these uh, all of these little segments when the only direction which they all add up and increase the strength of the signal 
is in the direction um, pointing along the bar towards the Your um, TV. <laughs> or, or towards the TV transmitter. So the signal gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you get a little um, detector at the back which detects that signal and sends it down into your TV. And quite often at the back they've got a reflector, so it reflects any signal which, which doesn't get absorbed by the sensor at the back, back again, and so it gets a double chance of being picked up. And is that what a Yagi aerial is? Is that, is that the name for it? Yes. Um, what does it, it stand for? Why is it called that? It, I think it was invented by a Japanese guy called Yagi. <laughs> as simple as that. Cat, very quick question for you. Yes. This is from Andrew. He says, what's the natural way of severing the umbilical cord in animals? Because, of course, we have little plastic clips and pairs of scissors, but what about other animals? Um, <laughs> the answer is not very pleasant. They chew it off, basically. Uh, you have nice, sharp teeth, chew it off. And this is because many animals, in fact, the mother, after birth, will actually eat the placenta. The placenta's not actually attached to the mother. It's attached to the placenta, which kind of falls out after birth. And that's all full of loads and loads of nutrients and goodies. And if you're an animal, you probably don't want them to go to waste. I mean, we've... It's the one piece of meat that a vegetarian can eat without harming anybody. Exactly. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. And now it's time to go to Diana O'Carroll, who's not in the studio this week, as she's busy having a party in space for Question of the Week. This week I'm taking a spacewalk to answer this question. Hi, it's Jake from South Dakota, and I was wondering if a balloon filled with helium would float on the moon. So, should Neil Armstrong have celebrated his small step with a giant balloon? Hi, I'm Phil Rosenberg, and I work for the Met Office at the Facility for Airborne Atmospheric Measurements. As far as a balloon's concerned, you need two things to make a balloon float. Firstly, you need an atmosphere for it to float in, and the second thing you actually need is gravity. And that's because the reason why a balloon floats is that the balloon itself is less dense than the air around it. So gravity pulls on the air around it more than the balloon. So the air around it actually tries to push underneath the balloon. That forces the balloon up and makes it float. Now, unfortunately, the moon hasn't got an atmosphere at all, basically. And therefore, you're missing one of the two things that you need to make a balloon float. So in that case, a balloon on the moon wouldn't float at all. It'd just basically land on the floor. However, that doesn't mean that you can't have balloons in space and on other bodies at all. Actually, the Russians launched a space mission in the 80s called Vega, and that involved actually putting a balloon in the atmosphere of Venus, which is the second closest planet to the Sun. So balloons in space are possible and have been done in the past. And looking to the future, there's a possibility we might be looking at putting balloons on Titan, which is one of Saturn's moons. Now, Titan has got an atmosphere, and... It's really cold there, and there is obviously gravity there, so therefore you've got all the things that you might need to have a balloon on Titan. The reason for doing that would be to have atmospheric instruments that you would hang from the bottom of the balloon, and they would measure Titan's atmosphere. And that's exactly what was done on Venus with the Vega mission. So, unfortunately, no balloons on the moon, but they do have uses elsewhere in the solar system, not just on the Earth. Turns out you need an atmosphere to have a proper party with... Although I, for one, would love to party on the moon. Well, from a load of not very hot air to someone who might be full of it. Next week's question is all about lie detectors. Hello, I'm Brian from North Yorkshire. After watching an episode of Mythbusters recently, in which the presenters tried to outwit a lie detector, the question arose in our house as to whether someone with a psychiatric disorder could successfully pass a lie detector test. 
as some of them don't apparently feel uh, remorse guilt for their wrongdoings, would they register abnormal readings when asked sensitive questions? So could the remorseless get away with it? Let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or by writing on our forum, which has some of the best answers. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thanks, Diana. And that was Diana O'Carroll, who'll be back in the studio next week when she's come back from outer space to tackle more of your questions. And now here's a bit of a spacey question for you, Chris. And Mark Aguilar has said, why doesn't the moon have a magnetic field? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's all to do with where the moon comes from. If you look at the composition of the moon, and we know what the moon's made of because one of the people we just heard mention, Neil Armstrong, was there. And scientists have brought back samples of the moon's surface. And so we know the composition of the moon. And the answer is that it's largely made of the same stuff as the Earth's crust. Now, where did it come from? Well, scientists have pieced back together a theoretical model of how the moon could have been made, because the moon's very big relative to the Earth. It's much bigger than most moons are. And what scientists think is that around about the time when the Earth was first forming, about four and a half billion years ago, when the solar system was very young, two planets the Earth and a second planet, which is notionally called Thea, ended up on a planetary collision course. They had the planetary equivalent of a road traffic accident, and the two ran into each other, and the massive catastrophic collision that ensued meant that a lot of debris from the crust of those planets got ejected like a cocoon around the Earth and this other planet, and the cores of those two planets merged together. So what you ended up with is one bigger planet with a very dense iron core and this cocoon of crusty material around the outside, which then slowly settled, just like the planets formed in the first place, to form a moon, which was all that debris aggregating in orbit around what was then the Earth. And the core of the Earth has got a lot of iron in it. It's a molten iron core, which is mobile, and we think that that's the ingredient you need to create a magnetic field. The moon, being a bit smaller, colder, and made principally of crust material, doesn't have that iron core that's liquid spinning around, making this magnetic dynamo effect, and therefore the moon doesn't have a magnetic field. And In fact, if we didn't have a magnetic field on Earth, we would largely resemble Mars, a dried-out prune of a planet, because our magnetic field helps to deflect off the solar wind, and that stops the solar wind plucking away all the water and atmosphere from our planet, and it keeps it the fertile, lovely place to live that it is today. Yeah, and also the moon being so much smaller than the Earth, it lost its heat a lot quicker, so it's entirely solid all the way through, so you don't get this molten core, which, molten conducting metallic core, which you need to create a strong magnetic field like the Earth has. Thanks, well, Dave. And now on The Naked Scientists, we are going to do our live kitchen science in the studio. And we've had, uh, we asked you to find a window, have someone inside and someone outside it with a torch each, turn one on, turn the other one on and then turn on both together. We've had a little uh, call in from Mark in Bletchley who says he's having a job for this experiment as he's 17 floors up and can't get my other half to hang outside. So assuming that you can do this, Dave, on a window that's on the ground floor or inside, what are we doing here? Okay, so we couldn't really get a window inside the studio, so I have a sheet of glass. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold it. You'll have the glass. Um, here, have a uh, torch. big torch. I'll are turn we going to turn lights the lights off? off? Okay. Hopefully. Plunged into darkness. Right. Okay. Now, if you, if I'll turn on my torch first. Okay. So Dave's shining his torch at his face. What can you see now? I can see your face. Unsurprisingly, yeah. Okay, I'll turn mine off now. Turn on your torch. Oh, I can see my face and not your face. And if I turn on mine as well. Oh, I can see your face. And a bit of yours over the and top. A bit, yeah, it kind of. Oh, we can align them up in some kind of freakish horror science accident. <laughs> okay. So. We've discovered that. Can we turn the lights back okay. on? Because it's scaring me. What's going on here? OK, this is actually the same principle that one-way mirrors work on, which you see in all the 
police dramas. Oh, yeah, where they're interrogating someone. Yeah. And so everyone can sit there watching without being seen themselves. OK, so what's going on is that glass doesn't just light, let light through it. If you look at it carefully, it also reflects quite well. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can see... Yeah. It doesn't reflect nearly as well as it transmits, so maybe sort of 10, 5% of the light will get reflected and 95% of it will get stri- go straight through. So when I'm looking at you through the glass, you can always see a bit of a reflection of yourself in the glass, but it's very, very weak. I can mostly see your can charming we? and beautiful face, oh, though. Thank you, Kat. OK. Now, if, however, I make my side very, very, very dark, there's going to be no light coming from me to the glass. So you're not going to, be able to see me because it's pitch black, so all you can see is a reflection. Um, but if um, because there's no light from me. So that was when I had the torch on my face, and you didn't have the torch on your face. Yeah. Whereas if I've got the torch on my face, but not on, but you haven't got it on your face, then all you can see is me because there's no light there hitting coming from you to hit the glass to reflect. So you can't see the reflection. And all you can see is me. Yeah. Because that's right. you're, uh, all you can see is yourself because you're. I'm not giving you any light. And with the one-way mirrors, in fact, there's nothing special. They're not one-way, the mirrors themselves. What they do is they make a mirror which is, isn't a very good mirror. It will reflect maybe 60% of the light which hits it and let some of it go through. Um, and basically, if you, all the people who are watching have to be in a really pitch-black room, so there's no light coming from them to the mirror and out. And the people they're watching want to be in a really bright room. So the people who are watching in the Big Brother studio or the criminals, when they look at the mirror, all they can see is light bouncing off them, hitting the mirror, and then they can just see the reflection because all the people hiding in behind are in the pitch black and there's no light coming off them. Could you replicate this at home by having really, really mucky windows on one side? Um, You need it to be very smooth. You need basically to have a very thin layer of aluminium on the surface, a very thin layer of silver, which isn't quite enough to make a proper proper mirror. Absolutely fascinating. So there we go. I wonder if anyone out there, did you, uh, if anyone out there tried it, not 17 floors up, unlike Mark, but if anyone uh, tried it at home, let us know if you found that. We should point out also that for our listeners in America, uh, when we say torch, okay, that is a flashlight. Flashlight, yes. I did get an email from one person who said, (laughs) Dave, love your experiments, just got out of hospital after a significant stay for some plastic surgery to put my face back on after you told me to shine a torch through a bottle of uh, liquid and, uh, and then look at the beam coming. <laughs> I'm sorry. He was joking, of course. <laughs> Look, Kat, got a question here from yes. uh, James who says, what do hospitals do with amputated tissue? Talking of hospitals and plastic surgery and things. Oh, nice. Um, well, in the UK, human tissue um, is regulated by the Human Tissue Authority. So there are quite a lot of rules about how you have to dispose of it. And um, I think with some things that are taken off people, you may be offered them to, to take them home if you'd like to. Cool. Uh, but most things, you probably don't want your diseased leg or something like that back. And it depends on what was wrong with the part of you that has been taken off. Um, so, for example, it may be sent down to the pathology lab so it can be cut up, you can look at it, you can see what was wrong with it. Um, in some cases, with the consent of the person whose tissue it originally was, it may be stored for research. So, for example, this happens with things like cancers a lot of the time. We we try and bank them so we can study them in the future. And obviously there's been quite a lot of things in the news, not so much recently, but about people's organs and tissues uh, being stored without consent. Um, but yeah, basically, if you don't consent to research, if they don't want it, uh, and you don't want it, it'll probably just be destroyed, usually by incineration. And here, certainly in the UK, a lot of this disposal is, is just contracted out to companies that take all the nasty body bits and tissue away and 
burn it somewhere. And Binham. The, the comedian Andy Hamilton uh, announced on television a while back that he actually had his thumb removed when he was little, for whatever reason. And he was desperate to keep this thumb. And so he had this thumb in a jar beside his hospital bed. And he woke up from his operation, saw the thumb in a jar, went back to sleep, woke up later and it was gone. And <laughs> he said he was absolutely mortified that someone had taken this thumb. And, and Sandy Toxvig, who's actually quizzing him at the time, said, well, who took it? Some desperate hitchhiker. <laughs> Here's another question for you, Chris. Not a hitch, but an itch. And we've had a question from Arthur in the USA who says, what makes us itch? Well, obviously we know what makes us itch because it's things which tickle your skin. But actually, how does that itch reach consciousness? And it looks like uh, there are itch-specific classes of nerve fibres. They're very, very tiny, thin-calibre nerve fibres, so they're about one to six microns. That's millionths of a metre across, so some of the tiniest nerve fibres in the body. And if you stimulate those nerve fibres, then people do detect a sensation of itch. So they seem to be there specifically to convey the sensation that something is tickling you. And they go up to the spinal cord and they squirt out a chemical transmitter called gastrin peptide releasing, or gastrin receptor releasing peptide, which is the transmitter which tells the spinal cord that there's an itch in a certain part of the body. And the purpose of itching is in fact to protect you because things that make you tickle an itch are usually either chemical irritants, physical irritants, or parasites, things like mosquitoes, for example, which can crawl on your skin and they might convey an infection to you, so it's important that you know where on the body there's a problem, so it draws attention to it and you get rid of it. How does scratching work? Well, in the same way that when you punch the wall and go ouch and then rub the affected body part better, this helps to gate the pain and stops things hurting so much. Well, when you itch, when you scratch an itch, what you're doing is inflicting a little bit of pain. And what scientists have found is that when you trigger a little bit of pain in the area where you've got an itch, that gates or switches off the itch sensation. So you're hurting yourself a bit to make the itch go away. Incredible stuff. And that's all we've got time for on The Naked Scientist now. So it's thanks from me and Dave here in the studio in Cambridge. Thanks, I guess, from Chris out in L.A., Hmm. Why don't I get to go to LA? It's not fair. I would also like to say thanks to our production team. That's Diana O'Carroll, Mira Sinthalingham, and here driving the desk is Tom Simpkins. So thanks for The Naked Scientist. Thanks for listening. See you next week and good night. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.